0: Welcome everybody to Coffee and Open Source. I'm glad that you can be with us today. We have a great interview. I have my coffee ready. Let's get started. So today my guest is Claire Novotny, executive director of the .NET Foundation. Say hey, Claire.
1: Hi, Isaac, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Um, so Claire, do you wanna just get started and just give a quick intro to kind of who you are? And then we're just gonna get into a great interview about Coffee and Open Source.
1: Sure. I mean. Anyone that knows me knows that I love coffee and I am one of the biggest coffee snobs out there. So I'd love to talk to you about coffee and cappuccino and espresso as long as you want. Open source, eh, what's that, right? Yeah, it's just exactly. That thing.
0: Do you have a coffee or are you just drinking water today?
1: So I had my second coffee already just before as we were prepping for this. I feel like if I have, I try to limit myself to two a day to try and be good, and not be too jittery.
0: And when you have a coffee, is it like so? I have a, a work, I had a work colleague that used to say, "There's normal coffee and there's hipster coffee." Are you in the hipster coffee variety, or do you occasionally will get like a um, you know a Seattle brand coffee, or maybe a more notable like? You know, oh, I don't do list. Seattle
1: coffee because you don't know how to do coffee out there. You burn oh, okay. it. Oh. <laughs> so I, I do have a, I use a local farm here in New York. It's called Irving farm and they have a lot of blends and single origin roasts from, you know, their producers. So there's a, I like the one that they have called Highline.
0: Okay. It's a
1: lighter crisper, uh, bean and it makes a very nice espresso. So that's, that's
0: so you prefer an espresso.
1: Well, I kind of go Italian style. I'll do my cappuccino in the morning up until eleven or so, and then in the afternoon I'm gonna go straight to the espresso.
0: Yeah, my wife and I recently got into the habit of of doing cold brew, which is basically just brew coffee and let it sit in your fridge overnight. Um, uh, There's more to it to that, but it's so strong, and I'm not like I don't prefer like the really really bold flavors, so. I just drink it as fast as possible.
1: So I'll, I'll do that with Thai tea. Yeah. And, you know, I'll take a, a quart of water, boil it, and then add a whole bunch of Thai tea to it, and then let it sit there for about a sugar. You need a bit of sugar. Let it cool for two hours with the tea in it so it's going to get nice and strong and steep. And you got to filter the tea out and then chill it overnight. And then there you go. Thai iced tea and you don't have to pay four bucks for it at a restaurant.
0: Well, yeah. Well, yeah, that's coffee, tea, any beverage. Like, I've, I've talked to my wife about this. Like, anytime you, like, as someone who knows how much, like, for instance, like, uh, you know, a glass of soda costs, like, actual, like, how much it costs for the syrup and the carbonated water and the fact that you get charged six bucks for it, um, yeah, I... I get the evil looks every time because I... It's crazy,
1: I and I water. love seltzer. And so one of the things that I've had for years is a soda stream. Yeah. And I have three or four liter bottles in the fridge, and I never really use any of the flavor packets, but I constantly keep mm. the soda full, and it's just something I prefer. So, yeah, I no need to go spend tons of money on bottled water and be wasteful.
0: Oh well, yeah, and what people probably don't realize is that there's nothing better with like uh, a gin or a vodka or any other alcoholic beverage if that is your decision to drink than with a nice seltzer
1: or just cut up cut up a lime, squeeze some lime in yep. it, and you know, just a bit of lime juice and seltzer. Nice and refreshing on a hot day.
0: Yeah. All right. Well I think we can talk about beverages all day, but I think the real reason why people, you know, wanna hear from you is talking about open source, right? Sure. So You mentioned that you're uh, the executive director of the .NET Foundation. Um, We can talk about that in a little bit, but I want to get more. I know I want to talk more about you and kind of how you got started in open source, right? So do you remember the first time open source was approached by you, like whenever, like the first time you came across open source, you're like, oh, this is interesting.
1: So I think I was casually aware of open source. I mean, I've been aware of it a very long time, but I've been in involved with computers forever. And as a developer in the 2000s, as a professional developer in the 2000s and later, it's always been there. I mean, even in college, I remember Slackware Linux was a thing and you would get a CD with the code to Linux on it. And it was the cool thing to do then was to compile your kernel. Like I don't know, you, you would do the make config or whatever, you'd answer 40 questions about what kernel options and flags do you want? And then, I don't know, 20 minutes later, you'd have a shiny new kernel that you could boot. And I guess that was open source, right? I mean, that was kind of the way that opens, that was my perception or intro to open source was, you know, pretty much Linux. And that was with the general public license, you know, GPL code, you could be had to be careful about it because, you know, you the viral nature of enabling like big changes, is this going to affect my stuff? And you may not want to do that. And and I should also add that I've always been more attuned to copyright and licenses than most, given that my mother is a copyright lawyer. Oh, so my mother does copyright, trademark and patent law, or, you know, and as a kid growing up, whenever I might happen to say, show an interest in certain software that may not have been properly acquired, she would always give me a look and say, you know, that's wrong, you can't do that. And I'd get the lecture about how it's stealing and how it's wrong and you have to pay for stuff. So it was something that I've been attuned to for a very long time and you know it's been it's certainly been helpful throughout yeah that's very interesting but in the microsoft space it was one of those things i've been using net since the very beginning and it open source wasn't something we thought about for a long time it wasn't until 2004 five, six, seven, when parts of MVC became open source, that it really started to even become interesting. Yeah. But even there, there wasn't much you could do with it. It was, all right, so there's code there. Okay, sure. And at the same time, you had sites like CodePlex and other projects that were on SourceForge that would Create their code in the open. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, I was in, I was helping out with programs like RSS Bandit, which yeah. is a newsreader application that I still use to this day. I am dependent on it, and I will not give it up. It is running on .NET Core three. I will get it on .NET five as soon as in, I get some control updates, um, but. The, it was an open source project. It was just a way to jump in, get stuff working, get features working and participate. This was all using CVS or Subversion or both at one point into SourceForge and would just get stuff done. But you didn't really have a lot of libraries in the open then. It was a few applications and I dare say there was hard to say that there was a community yet Sure.
0: Yeah. Cause now I it's, it think it's pretty obvious that like open source is synonymous with community. Right. I think one of the interesting things that you brought up. Um, so when you were younger, were you a bit of a tinkerer? Did you do the whole take apart your computer, put it back together? Oh, yes. Yeah. So
1: my father worked at digital oh, okay. Equipment corporation and in Maynard and Hudson, Massachusetts. So we had computers in the house from a very early age. He was he, back in those days you were allowed to bring computers home from work for personal reason for personal use cuz and so we were on decnet i mean i remember we were connecting he was, we were doing ascii art from some of the decnet sites that were there That's awesome it was kind of cool as a you know someone in elementary school yeah and later on i remember we had some 386 or some i don't know maybe it was a 286 something and i would open the case up you know, I had my screwdrivers, I'd Phillips heads, and I would take them apart. And my mother would walk by in horror because she would say, What did you just do to the computer? Yeah. Meanwhile, my father would walk by and say, Ah, don't worry about it. She'll put it back together again. It's fine. And, yeah. you know, it was. I always, was always curious. I want to know, how did it work? You know, what did it take? And then that went from the hardware to the software. Yep. I would read the code books in school. The library, I don't know if you remember this, the library had books, like a lot of it were basic at the time, like yep. basic language, basic, basic, yeah. right? But you'd have lines, like 10, 20, 30, 40, it would be tens yeah. of thousands of lines of code that you could type in. And figure out how it works. Mm-hmm. So I would I would check those out of the library and play with them and figure it out. And I just audit to myself.
0: Yeah, it's it. I it, when I have these conversations with with people in tech, it's always like my parents got a computer, and I took it apart a thousand times. And once I figured out how the hardware worked, I started either you know building websites or you know people maybe some people started on basic if they started programming a little bit earlier, but it all ends up I was always taking apart computers. And I remember when I was younger, I, I was, so we didn't get a computer until I was like a sophomore in high school. And I remember just bothering my parents over and over and over again. And we finally got one. And within two days, it was completely taken apart.
1: Yeah. And of course. what else would you do?
0: Exactly. And I remember my dad being like, well, if you can put it back together, you can keep it in your room. And then at that point it was just like all day long, just pat da because my parents could care less about the about having a computer. It was for me, um, because they saw that was interested in the stuff. But it's I always tied together to, Even before computers, I used to take apart remote control cars. I It's just like I did that too. Yeah, to,
1: the oh, oh, I loved model rockets because I would yep. build it and I would want to. I never really painted stuff. Model air models of any kind. Yep. All the instructions, and it was always for me about the building. I, I'd get the yeah plastic glue and do it never had the patience to paint it sure i'm sure some of that extends to this day you look at what do you have attention to detail well, in sure. some areas but yeah coloring it and making sure everything is maybe leave that to somebody else but so i'd assemble them and then it went to model rockets and that was so cool right the sd's model rocket kits it's put like them together put an engine see how high they could
0: go so i live right outside of seattle and seattle um outside of seattle there's a museum called the museum of flight um and occasionally it's an awesome museum yes it's great if anybody's in the area they should go um it's because occasionally they have like collector's events there so people will come and bring all these model airplanes and you see people ranging from like age eight all the way to like 88 so i think it's one of those things where you know the People love to tinker, and that doesn't go away no matter how old you are. Never. Uh, so you, you mentioned a, a couple of things that I thought were were pretty interesting, especially like getting started with, um, you know, some version of of um, uh, source code management and sourceforge and things like that. When did you realize, probably in your professional career, I'm guessing, when did you realize that hey, this open source thing, like, it's something way bigger than just building silly things and having them available for download.
1: So I'd say that for me, that was when it really became something other than from applications and into something where, Hey, I can give back and I can really help others was back in 2010, 2011, 2012, and it was really right around the windows eight Time frame. I want to say, and there were some tools that we were working on, and you know I was working for a consulting company at the time, and there was just in any software project, there's common pieces. There's pieces that you need to build for the client for the project. Yep. But there's tons of infrastructure stuff. Yeah. And there's bits in, and there's tools you use like that you need to do something with and help you. Like MVVM Lite, which is a fantastic library from Laurent Bunyan, is, was instrumental. I think that that project has been around for a while. I think probably dating until the, I don't remember when he started it, but it was it was already a thing for probably 10 years now, easy. And you're building on stuff and it occurs to you that, hey, look, we can give something back. So when I was working on a logging library and needed a way of getting this to work with a Windows 8 application, I was working with a, the a library author, Matt Baxter Reynolds, who had, I just helped technical edit one of his books on, and he had a library called Metrolog. And this was a tool, uh, an, a, a library that could just log, Stuff in your application to the disk, and up until then, there really wasn't anything that would work with Windows Store applications, Metro apps, right? Metro, sure. Metro. Before apps. all that naming stuff, that's what it was, and that's why the library was called that. But back then, it's I mean it's easy to forget, we didn't have, we didn't portable class libraries were only really just starting to become a thing. Yep. Most. Libraries at this point, if there was a desktop stuff, it was for WPF or Windows Forms. It was targeted at .NET four probably or maybe four or five. Windows Store apps were, unfortunately, a complete reset. Yeah, there was very little support of existing libraries, so there was an opportunity in there to port and adapt, to either create some libraries like Metrolog that filled gaps. Or like in the case of NINJECT, NINJECT at the time was a popular dependency injection library, but like many libraries, they didn't have Windows Store support. So I was able to go and fork it and make it a version that worked for the store and with portable class libraries and use kind of the bait and switch techniques that many of us have become more familiar with these days but I wasn't going to just do this for myself. This was look, yeah. I need this in my application, but other, if I find it useful and I can, you know, I, for me, the challenge, the puzzle was digging in was figuring out I can make this work, yeah. but other people shouldn't have to. It, that's, and that's always been my philosophy. I mean, I want to find things and create and fill gaps in yeah. the tool chain that So the other people don't have to get stuck and they can go build really cool things.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I think one of the things that resonated for me is doing something that somebody else has to do as well, right? Like as most developers, I, I I'm like this, I'm assuming you're like this too, is hate doing something more than a couple of times. So you always write silly little things to automate and if you do something, a few times your immediate reactions Well, probably other people have similar things to this too and i imagine that's how most open source ideas come from right is people are like man why is this hard why do i have to do this like you brought up a couple of Mm well-known libraries like nvm light and inject the they their exact i worked
1: with laurent's library again this was on i think that one was on codeplex at the time i it's been so long my memory like i can't keep track of where things started and migrated sure. to. I mean, now they're all on GitHub because yes. GitHub kind of won the world. But it was one of those things where MVVM Light didn't work. You know, it was great on WPF, but there was nothing for Windows Store applications. So I had contacted Laurent and I had a fork and you know said, "Look, here is the bait and switch. Here's the portable version. Here's the." you know, here's some stuff, here's how to make what we can work, work on Windows 8. And eventually, you know, over the years, A, got to know him, and he's an amazing person. So you get to meet more people and just kind of just jump in. And, you know, ultimately, he wound up taking the work that I had done and incorporating it into MVVM Lite. And I think, you know, that's something I'm proud of, because it's the kind of thing where, I can give back and, you know, I don't need to keep maintaining this thing forever, but I can maybe do and fill a gap and hand it off. And I think, so I think the theme here is that in the course of doing work, I was all actively looking for opportunities where I could improve the foundation of the tools I was using. Yeah. And X unit was another one. So X unit at the time, the, 1.0 1.0 version of XUnit supported .NET framework. And I needed a unit testing framework for .NET, um, well, for Windows Store. And it was necessary to get that working in order to prove that the things I was porting, like NINJECT and MVVM Light, if I'm going to submit a pull request, I need their tests to pass. Yeah. So as I go through the dependency tree, I get to X unit and I say, oh crap, how do I get this working? And I say, oh, well, I don't want to, you know, MS test works somehow. And there was no documentation on how MS test got itself working in a store app, talking to visual Studio, so that the tests would show up. It, It worked. But I actually then took the time to dive in using Reflector and other tools to reverse engineer how did this work? Yeah, And then, again, work with Brad Wilson from XUnit to figure out, oh, here's how we can support Windows Store apps and Windows Phone apps in XUnit. Again, I needed to do it. Because I needed it to prove that the libraries I was porting worked. Yep. Some days I think Brad doesn't forgive me for making his life way more complicated by multi-targeting uh, and uh, having it support all these other frameworks. So. Uh, I mean, I think
0: drag. I think Brad probably recognizes that without your help, it would have probably taken far longer too. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting as well Is like, so you're talking about contributing, starting out as the contributor to um, other projects. Like, you know, you, you mentioned VM Lite or XUnit, but, you know, over the course of time, like you have built uh, a ton of libraries and applications that are, you know, hosted in the open that a ton of people use. Uh, you want to talk about them a little bit?
1: Sure, I mean, again, everything I've done so far is really in that theme. I need stuff to fill gaps. So there was a time like when multi-targeting started to become a thing and say, you know, when DNX just came around, if we remember that back in 2015 and 2014, when .NET Core was just out there and all of a sudden you could, instead of having to do bait and switch and you had to, you know, do all kinds of weird tricks, you had a project system which could build multiple targets all at once, but those multiple targets were, you know, .NET standard, .NET core and .NET framework. And that's all it supported. But, you know, the ecosystem is bigger than that. We had Xamarin at the time uh, we had windows store or windows 10, the, depending on what era, we still had legacy portable class libraries. There's a lot of other stuff. And I mean, I just kind of dove in and I said, look, what do we need to do to hook up those targets, those, the build mechanisms that are already there. I mean, my goal was not to reinvent anything. That's not how it worked. It was really to put the glue code in so that multi-targeting would understand and could find the targets and tools needed that were, you know, that could be done the old way. So just, again, it was one of these things where trying to make it easier.
0: Um, trying to build bridges. That's all you're doing,
1: Claire, is just building bridges. I mean, oh, I mean another one, OS version helper yep. was one where when it's, for all kinds of compatibility reasons, it is much harder than you might expect in order to get the true version number of Windows. Windows likes to lie to you. And that does so because too many applications have built assumptions on in compatibility checks. And if they say this is, you know, supports windows version 6.0 point, whatever, maybe that there didn't properly check something and windows 10 would have worked, you know, so windows 10 will lie. And if you're calling, if an application says, Hey, I'm an old application, I was written before Windows 10 even be- was a thing. I don't know a thing about Windows 10, but I'm calling this API to get the version number. Yep. Windows is going to lie and give it version, some older version yep. that it's aware of because Windows knows it's going to work Yep. and it doesn't want to risk breaking it. But if you're in a case where you actually say, I do know about Windows 10. I want to know the true, I want to know the build number. Maybe I want to do adaptive code and light up and call APIs that might be there. That was actually quite hard. And that was something that I had, you know, seen that partly was done by the windows community toolkit, but it was a helper function. Yep. And I said, look. Instead of just keeping this buried in the Windows Community Toolkit, I'm gonna take this, put it as a first-class library and make this easier for other people to consume. Another case where that another re- a related feature of this is that in Windows 10, applications can run as loose applications. You just you know, download something off the internet and run it, or they can be in an application container. Yep, think a uh, store application or MSIX and there's some I mean application virtualization isn't the right word, but it's a form of container that's running around the application that can do registry and file system sure. virtualization and redirection and helps keep your machine clean and tidy. Yep. Good way to say it. Also some APIs like calling the notifications tray in Windows need this concept of an application identity, which is provided by that container. Yep. But if you want to know, if suppose you're an application that may be in a container, and may not be in a container. If you want to have a check to say, if I'm in a container, do this and if not do that, that was hard. And that's the kind of thing where you can reduce that. And, you know, again, put a library around it.
0: Yeah. And Full disclosure, I use OS version helper for in one of the open source projects that I have called Presence Light. Um, So one of the things that you talked about, you know, contributing open source, like in this, this, you know, not to, um, not to grandize things, but it made you pretty well known in the in the.net community, right. Um, And, you know, so, if, if folks don't know, Claire, before she joined Microsoft, she was a Microsoft MVP. She was part of, uh, she's a regional director as well. Um, and these are things that Microsoft gives to folks to, um, you know, that are strong community champions, right? Um, I'm probably missing some of the other 4,000 awards that she has, but um, it, it's one of those things where, you know, people that do open source, they do it for, the greater good and they do it for community, but you know, there are some opportunities where you can be recognized
1: for it. I mean, I have to say I've been privileged and lucky to be in a position where I've been able to spend reasonably large chunks of time to be able to do this. I mean, I definitely love to be able to give back. I love to be able to help others and unblock others succeed, but It was because I was able, in large part, because I was able to do that as a consultant and because I was able to consciously split off, hey, here's client deliverables from here's, you know, client subsidizing open source work because it's non-business logic and being able to do that, you know, it's a line you have to walk, but it's not, I've never... I've been in a position I've never worked for myself. I've always worked for other companies. Mm-hmm. So I recognize that it can be challenging to monetize and make money off of open source and spend a ton of time there. But I, cause I've been, and I've been lucky that I haven't relied on that as my income stream. I've worked for others and this is just something I've been able to give back along the way.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think one of the things that's really important to call out is that when like i i use the analogy even though i'm not a huge fan of it like the standing on shoulders of giants thing right where if you give back you know potentially hopefully the people that are using your stuff in the future will give back that's what happened with me i imagine it's happened with you and and a lot of other folks and you know when you become did you want to say something okay uh so (laughs) when uh so getting back to kind of your you know progression through things. So you're a community champion, you're you're well known in the Donnet community, and then you decide to join Microsoft as the executive director. Do you want to just briefly tell me kind of how your day is?
1: Sure. So I mean, no two days are the same. I'll say that and that's one of the things I love about my job. I mean, is a, you know, as a PM, we do so many different things and it's a lot of, you know, cat herding is a good example. Sure. But I will start with a usually by checking on the news and Twitter kind of seeing what's going on. You know, it's the modern edition of reading the morning paper or papers, right? Yeah. What's going on. I'll check my GitHub notifications and try to see what I can and mark a lot as read, maybe take some action, like the pointy clicky stuff that doesn't require focus time. Right. Like we all know what that is, right? Like, My brain doesn't need to work, but I can point and click. I can review a PR, a small one. I can merge it. Mm -hmm. So try to funnel that off and then review my calendar and say, look, is this a day where I need to focus in on things if I can, which has been extraordinarily difficult during this, you know, the recent months due to the pandemic. Yeah. But the... Areas that if I need a chunk of time, I'll put a block of time in my calendar and say, I'm working on this blog post or I'm doing this thing over there. But then other days we'll have a smattering of all kinds of different meetings where I need to look ahead and say, oh, do I have time for lunch today? Or let me make time or let me eat lunch early. Like today, as an example, I had lunch an hour ago because I knew we were, this is running, this is at noon it started. We yep. started around noon Eastern time. I have a .NET Foundation corporate sponsors meeting in half an hour. And then I'm like, just my afternoon is just going to be meeting after meeting. And tomorrow doesn't look a heck of a lot better. Sure. It totally depends.
0: So what you're saying is that um, me sending you a meeting request for noon Eastern isn't very accommodating. I'll take note.
1: Uh, I'll say that it's very easy for folks on the West Coast starting their day at 9am to find that nice chunk of time that has been conveniently, like, scheduled around by your East Coast colleagues because we wanted to eat something. <laughs>
0: sure. And my only response to that is I've had plenty of colleagues on the East Coast send me meetings for 10 o'clock their time, which I'm not attending ever. So... Um... So with that, uh, I I want to just preface this real quick. So, uh, both Claire and myself, uh, we work at Microsoft. Uh, Claire obviously is affiliated with the .NET Foundation as the executive director. I'm a paying member of the .NET Foundation as well as on the marketing committee. So, so you know, one of the things that I think is really important to talk about with the .NET Foundation in general is that it's not just .NET-y stuff right there is, like there's other things that you've been able to accomplish as executive director so one of the things i'd like to talk about really briefly is dev around the sun sure which was uh, it was a a 24 hour uh, virtual conference um that raised money for covid-19 relief Do you want to talk about that a little bit
1: sure so uh, back in after this idea started back around MVP summit which was middle of march when Jeffrey Strauss, who is one of those running for the board and a number of others had this meta conf that they've done organized every year for organizers of other conferences. So they do KCDC there's that conference, many of the regional and larger conferences that you've heard of their organizers will get together and, you know, talk about ideas on how to promote their events. And this was just after the shutdown started from COVID-19 and we were discussing things around why do we, what's the motivation to have these virtual conferences? What, what makes our events unique? If in many cases it was the local crowds, it was the interactions and it was the, you know, the, the local community or some of them had water slides. Others had other activities. And when you start taking these events and making them virtual, a lot of that can get lost in the mix. I mean, and so we were thinking, and it occurred to me that one thing we could do and as a motivation, why do we want to have a conference is that we could do a fundraiser. And it popped into my head, something like Live Aid, which was a, relief for famine in Africa that was done in the late in the mid eighties or late eighties, I want to say. And it was an international event of rock stars that had come in to put on a massive event as a fundraiser. And we've always talked about jokingly or, you know, half jokingly that our industry has our own set of rock stars, the rock star developer and the idea here was all right maybe we can get them together get our rock stars get our industry luminaries together to across audiences as a unity event and raise money for a good cause with some lighter material and do this over a you know follow the sun a 24 hour event and we did that in we actually ex- we planned and executed that in six or seven weeks, start to finish. And that took place at the beginning of early May. And we raised, I think, 55000 $57,000 for Direct Relief's Coronavirus Response Fund. And we had a lot of fun and a lot of success in doing that event. So that was definitely something we were thrilled to be able to host and put together and just bring everyone together in this challenging time for a good cause.
0: Yeah, no, like, you know, I was fortunate enough to be a part of that as well. And I think that just the, the quality of the, the folks that you got doing the talks and just the fact that you know, we talked about this a little bit, um, just the fact that we just made $50,000 appear and donated, and got to donate it to Relief, that's just it, like, it's awesome. And you know, hopefully in the future, we can do things like that, um, maybe for something other than
1: COVID, because I really don't want COVID to be sure. around for another <laughs> eight months. Yeah, the um, thing I love about it was that it was a community event. We had yep. nine or ten organizers, and I had never organized an event like this. This was a genuinely a team effort and shows the power of the community mm-hmm. when we can get folks together. You know, we had, and, you know, Jeff and jo- jo- Jonathan Strauss, uh, so J- Jonathan Mills and Jeff Strauss, Heather Downing, uh, Sarah Cooper with some graphics, you're on there, Chris Fanos is PM and Christina Alden on some PR and marketing and you know, and Jeff Fritz with his amazing live coders uh, production staff and I'm sure I'm, I know I'm missing others but this was one of those things where that shows the power of what people can do when they can come together to get it done because no one of us had that we were all had day jobs. None of us quit what we were doing to do this, This was all squeezed in along the side and shows how, again, like when the community comes together, we can do awesome things. And that's definitely something that we're trying to provide that platform for in the foundation where we are trying to empower the community to run with some initiatives, whether it's through funding to make things happen, project support, the foundation itself strives to make the .NET ecosystem healthy. Mm -hmm. It tries to get some outreach and really just make things better. What that specifically means is really up to the community and the board. The board is there you know, many like many people like to ask, so what is the .NET Foundation? What does it do? What is it like? Why do I care? What are you? What have you been doing? And I think one of the things that we're trying, what the goal here is, we're a virtual, we're a nucleus. We're the focal point. We have the infrastructure and organization to enable the community to come together and do something. Yeah. And that's really like, but it's ultimately up to the board to decide and say, hey, look, we want this year, or we want to do this. We want to focus on these activities. Let's encourage and enable the community to come in and participate in discussions and hosting events. Yeah. There's been some awesome stuff that's happened. So even more recently, James Montemagano and John Galloway have put together a series of virtual meetup groups to try to amplify the existing virtual community using our global channel and platform in our marketing. Now, it's true that both of them do work for Microsoft. However, they're not working for the foundation as Microsoft employees. Like you, they're volunteers and they're doing this as community members, which anyone can do any community member can have an idea and say, look, we want to run this series of events. Here's our proposal. Here's what we want to do. And we'll help you connect you with others and give you resources to make that happen.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's spot on. Like, I think when I think, so as somebody who pays their dues in the foundation, I think the the first thing that I think of is like, Oh, you know, how can I do more? How can I be, you know, a part of this amazing community other than just providing funds, right? Um, there are tons of ways to do so, I'd imagine.
1: Sure. I mean, the right now the main way to come in is via the discussion forums on the GitHub site. So, all members are can go to the .NET Foundation GitHub organization, go to the teams link at the top there, and there's. Six or seven different areas, which have discussions in them, and those are where the committees are having topical discussions. For example, the projects committee, which is led by Sean Walker, um, is working on looking at what what projects are looking for. What are the what benefits do you want as a member project? There's been questions and discussion out on Twitter recently over the past few months about what do I get as a.NET Foundation project? And while many of the services we do already provide are considered essential by many, like the IP support, the, the license support, these are the core basics that companies and others need in order to be able to use open source libraries and confidently. Mm-hmm. Many library authors, like, eh, it's, it's not, it's there, it's a checkbox, it's an important one. But there's clearly, there's more we can do. And there's some discussions happening in there, in that, in the projects group around that. Yep. There's this notion of a seed project that we've been talking about. What does this mean? And there's been some, well, some of the discussions there have been, what if we want to have a collections class? Framework doesn't have a modern collections library. It's not necessarily something that belongs, it's not part of the Microsoft core framework. It's not, it's something that should be fostered and developed by the community as a seed. And is there something we can do that is more Apache style, if you will, for these projects? Can we establish a project management committee? And I will shamelessly rip that from Apache and say, look, this project or these nucleus, these seed projects we're developing have a core committee that is responsible for its backlog and its direction has contributors that have right access. I mean, Apache has an established model that works for many of their projects. Maybe there's things we can borrow and adapt from them.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I think,
1: and those discussions are happening. We want community participation. This are these discussions are not me and the board just in a closed room. Sure.
0: Yeah, no, to quote uh, to quote Hamilton, the, the Broadway show, like you want to be in the room where it happens, right? And the room is very big in this scenario. The room is all GitHub slash Foundation. Uh, I think one of the things that might be very um, interesting to talk about is there you mentioned the board, right? So there is an election coming up, right? Do you want to just give some more info about that?
1: Sure, yeah, the board of directors is, as I mentioned before, is super important to the foundation. They're the ones, the board is my boss. So I am actually not, I I was on the board before I joined as executive director and I stepped down in order to become executive director because in our, in the foundation, the executive director reports to the board. The board is the one that has the power. They decide what should be happening. We'll look at the budget and we'll say, look, Here's what we can do. Here's where we want to raise more funds. Here's what we should be doing. And try and put programs together and place things in place to enable the foundation to, to do things. Yeah. I want to
0: take a, just a little yeah. step back for a second. So so, the,
1: so I didn't think I answered your question, though. Oh, OK.
0: Well, continue we, then.
1: The board has, a, in the past, had a one year term in order to improve the organization efficiency and had kind of reduced turnover. And uh, we instituted, we changed that up this year to be a two year term and are going to, so that we can have a stagger. Sure. So we can only have half the board elected every other year or each year half. So we don't have a full turnover and establish, keep some continuity in place. And we're going to have, we created a nominating committee to try and narrowed down the list of candidates to those that had relevant experience. Sure. And that was there because the.net foundation or being on the board, despite having.net in our name is not a technical role. Sure. We're not doing API reviews. We're not checking code commits. We're here to build an organization. We're here to build a community to empower folks. Well, And we need people that can spend, you know, let's say we said about 10 hours a month and help make these things happen. We need a working board. Yep. And so that's why one of the goals of the nominating committee was to kind of take a look at the qualifications of the candidates and say, okay, does this person seem to have relevant experience or, and they were also supposed to go out and tap people on the shoulder and encourage them to nominate themselves to try and have a more diverse board as yep. well. We're happy to have people on the board who are have community experience running other foundations that may not even know.net mm-hmm. and I welcome that diversity of ideas yes we can teach the tech we can teach like hey here's who's who in our community. We can certainly benefit from the shared wisdom and experience that folks who have been involved with openjs and other and Ruby and Python and other ecosystems have, and help invigorate our own environment and ecosystem.
0: So, when is the election?
1: So, the current campaign period started last week and runs for another week. The it's a two-week campaign period. There's going to be a series of live interviews starting tomorrow and going through Friday. Uh, and we so we tweeted that out. There's be the three hours scheduled tomorrow, noon. 4 and 7 p.m. Eastern time. And we're going to have a time slot uh, to, on Friday as well. So p- stay tuned for that. Those will be live. You can ask questions. And the results will be on our YouTube channel if you can't make it. And then the election itself starts on the 21st of August and then runs for two weeks. All members will be receiving a link to with a special link where they can then vote and it will be using the same voting system as last year, which is a ranked voting yep. system. You can The only way you up. should be voting, if I should yep. just be honest. The only
0: way you should be voting.
1: I look, uh, so yeah. the results will be available by at the first week of August, and the first board meeting with the new board is scheduled for the third, I want to say August 13th or 16th, it's the whatever that Thursday is that week. Okay.
0: So so, what I'm hearing is that there's not going to be a uh, candidate debate. Like in some politics, you'll have like this huge list of folks and they just say terrible things about each other. That's not going to happen?
1: No, I think we're trying to keep this positive. I mean, sure. let's keep this focused. We don't want to get everyone. This isn't. Any, lots of people have a diversity of views and thought points. And we need the public to, we need you all to take a look and see who you think will be best suited to run. And despite elections, I mean, they are popularity contests. Yep. Let's try to go beyond name recognition. You know, I encourage everyone to go through the bios on the website, watch the interviews, see any videos they've posted, and really maybe take solace and in... the nominating committee thinks each and every one of them can do an amazing job as a board member. So which of the ones that are up of, of the, for the folks that are there are there any that speak to priorities that you're looking for? Are there ones that represent, you know, opinions or please, we, we need a good board. And I'm yeah. super excited to see what gets picked because, you know, taking this organization forward.
0: Yeah. So I'll just say one thing. Right. So at so whenever you have an opportunity to vote, you should be voting. Right. Um, that's the only way that you feel that that you're going to have the representation that you want. So voting is very important in every aspect of life. Oh. Um, I wanted to to finish off on kind of this this general thought, right? So before you were executive director of the .NET Foundation, before you were on the board, Sorry. um, you were a member of the .NET Foundation,
1: mm-hmm. right? I'm still a member. Yeah, am, Even as executive director, I I've paid my dues. Yeah.
0: So I guess one of the things I'm very curious about from your perspective, you know, since you've been at multiple levels of I would say type of membership of the foundation, even though we're all members, you know, there's some members that have more responsibilities than others. Um, so what, so what was your orig- original feeling about joining the .NET foundation? And then obviously what convinced you to run for the board and obviously move on to, you know, taking the executive director. role?
1: So Sometime in. I forget whether it was 2015 or 2016, one or the other. I was at the Connect conference, the Connect event that Microsoft put on in New York, and I was one of the, you know, I was lucky to be invited on site. It was it was primarily a virtual event, but there were a small number of folks here, and I bumped into my friend Martin Woodward was the executive director of the foundation at the time. And i would know, known him for a number of years from my time at Microsoft in the past and just in the community. And I asked him, you know, I said, hey Martin, I want to do more. How can I do more? How can I get more involved in the foundation and find see how it can either be more impactful? And he suggested uh, that I can join the advisory council. And that's a a group that is a provides feedback to the executive director and meets, you know, roughly monthly on that note. So I was a advisory, I was on the advisory council for a couple of years. And then when there became an opening on the board, I think in 2018, sometime after a previous community director had stepped down, I was nominated by the board to be that community director because the, the, in, the, in the past the foundation was three board members and the executive director where two folks were from Microsoft it was Scott Hunter and Miguel de Casa. the community member for a while at the time was Rachel Reese Rachel had stepped down she didn't she want to pursue other things and I you know they came to me as someone that had been actively participating in the Advisory Council and helping set up a lot of our the foundation's infrastructure. And I was more than happy and honored to be able to join and help out. And again, how can I have more impact? How can I be more useful to the organization?
0: That's that's great. I think it, you know, goes back to the entire conversation we've had about being a part of a community and putting yourself in a position where you're going to be helping others because without any of this stuff, like we're all just doing our job. Like I I think you might have even mentioned earlier, like there's not a lot of money in open source, and you know the the companies and the entities that have been able to be successful, like that's not the norm, right? That's very well, much. I mean, well, more.
1: we look at Red Hat, and you know their amazing sale to IBM. I mean, Red Hat certainly figured out how to make yeah. money in open source, but I think there's more work we can do as a community to try and figure out some solutions to these challenges. I mean it's definitely something we need to look at long and hard at. So what would you
0: think is kind of the overall responsibility of the
1: foundation? So in my view, and again, the foundation is there to ensure the stability and health of the ecosystem. And I know that sounds short, but it's intentionally vague. There's no single thing that it does. And we try and address things where it's needed at the time and also with an eye towards the future. And please, and we need, and the board is there to help guide it. We need the community contribution to help steer these things. There's a number of initiatives we're working on, but as with Dev Around the Sun, we can't do it without participation. These This isn't a one-person show. Sure. It's not a show of the executive director and the board the board are volunteers they all have day jobs we all we need people to kind of come in and you know help if 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 you're passionate you want to do something we're here to na- make sure to let you ha- and empower you to do that
0: yeah so claire i want to thank you so much for you know coming on cop being open source and just talking about your experiences open source the last thing I want to ask it it can be a one word it can be a sentence. So what does open source mean to you?
1: Open source to me I think means community yeah that's it. if I have to say it in a nutshell, it's community and it's I, I love our community and I'm you know I, I just I want to see us all succeed. I think a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm a firm believer in that and I want to you know, See that continue to happen for us, in.NET.
0: That's awesome. So thank you so much again, Claire, for joining me. And you know, again, just to call out a couple of things: so githubcom foundation. That's you know where you're going to find as much information as you could possibly want to know about all the things going on with the foundation. If you feel like and you our want our website, was that?
1: And our website and the net .NET foundation, foundation website,
0: um, which the source code, funny enough, is on GitHub. Um, I think one of the things that is really important to call out is that without community, the .NET Foundation can't be as successful as it is. Is that fair to say?
1: Completely fair.
0: Right. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we'll see you on another episode of Copy and Open Source. Take care.
1: Thank you.